From the heart of the Oregon wine country, you're listening to Season 5 of the Wine Crush Podcast. Stories uncorked for casual wine enthusiasts around the world, featuring winemakers from the Willamette Valley. Sponsored by Country Financial. From origin stories to terroir, here's your host, Heidi Moore. everybody and welcome to Wine Crush. We are season five, episode three. We are closing up or beginning of the new year, depending on, you know, when you're listening to this. So um, bring on 2022 and a completely, well, new year. So we'll see what's in store for us then. Well, today we have um, the crew from Vidon. I'm not even going to name them all right now because there's four of them. So we're going to hear all four of them as we go on. And then we have Andrew Beckham with Beckham Estates is going to join us as well. But we are going to start with the Vidon crew, which means we're going to start with the two owners, Drew and Aaron, who are going to tell us all about the story and uh, how they kind of came into the wine industry. So welcome to you both. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate you having us. Thank you very much. Yes. Well, let's, um, you guys are kind of new owners to Vidon. I mean, fairly new in the last year or two, I think. And But Vedon has been around for a very long time, or at least a while. And so I want you to kind of tell us, you know, maybe a little bit of the past history and where you guys are at with how you got involved in this, because most people just don't walk in, you know, and decide they're going to buy a winery one day, which was kind of cool to hear your story. So I'm going to turn everything over to you and let's talk about Vedon. Fantastic. Thank you for the introduction. So Vedon was originally founded by Don Haggy and his wife, Vicky. Uh, hence, Vidon, Vicky, and Don. Uh, the story goes, Don was 68 years old riding his bicycle uh, up Hillside Drive and found the property. At that point, was loaded with uh, poison oak and tree stumps, uh, as it turns out. And he had the notion that it would be a fantastic place to start a, a vineyard. And so that's what he did. Uh, he spent the next 20 years planting five blocks. Uh, we've got about 12 and a half acres planted in vine currently. Yeah, I ran it until 2020 when he sold to, to Aaron and I. 2021? 2020, yeah. It was uh, one of November, those years. November of 2020. So we were just uh, just over a year into it. And we we just, it was really just happenstantial that we ran across the opportunity to purchase the vineyard. We were on a river cruise in Europe, of all places, where we ran into four couples from Newburgh, Oregon. And... Uh, that was in 2019, and and one of those uh, evenings, I'm sure filled with libations, I had uh, made the comment that it would be wonderful to own a vineyard sometime, and I had totally forgotten about it. And 14 months later, we ran into one of those couples uh, in Newburgh again, and Dennis happened to remember the conversation and asked if I was serious. And uh, uh, I said, possibly, and he said, I've got a friend that's selling a winery. How would you like to come up and check it out the next day? And we did, and Instantly kind of fell in love with the property. And so uh, we put an offer in shortly thereafter and and uh, took it over. That's like the cliff note version of like, you know, the whole thing. I mean, wow. So, okay, let's back up just a little bit because, you know, where was the river cruise? Because it's one thing if it's local, it's another thing if it's in Europe. Well, I, I believe I had mentioned it was in Europe. It was on the Danube. Oh, maybe you did. And I just wasn't <laughs> listening. So there we go. There we go. <laughs> it was a Cliff Notes version and, and it was uh, fairly quick. But yeah, it was on, uh, on the Danube. Started in uh, Czechoslovakia, the Czech Republic, right? And then ended up in Prague. And uh, yeah, it was a 10-day cruise and it was a fantastic uh, experience. And again, being a native Oregonian that I am uh, and Aaron and I having visited the the wine country in the Lama Valley for 20 plus years, we kind of had a natural connection with 
the new Burgundians that were on the on the ship. So spent a lot of time getting to know them over the first few days, and and so it was a lot of fun. It's so interesting when you go halfway around the world and you run into somebody that's local, so to speak. You become friends, and then you run into the game randomly local again. I'm a big believer in serendipity, and things happen for a reason, and doors open when they're supposed to open, and blah, blah, blah. And that kind of sounds like what happened with you guys. 100%. We had recently retired before we had gone on that river cruise. We had not been able to travel, which is why we took that opportunity to do so. And so we we had you know, retired at an age in which we felt that if there was an opportunity that presented itself to us, we would jump at it. If provided it was an opportunity that was we felt we'd have a great time doing and, and that would kind of be fulfilling on a, on a different level than our previous vocation. And, and uh, not looking for anything, it would have to fall into our lap effectively or at least present itself in a very serendipitous way to, to steal your word. So when this did and because of the set of circumstances that had to have happened to have presented itself, uh, that was certainly part of the conversation. Like, wow, there's so many things that had to have happened for this this to be an opportunity. We can't overlook that. So perhaps we looked at it a little bit more seriously than we than we otherwise would have because of that. Well, I want to kind of add too that your past careers, so to speak, and let's be honest here, you two don't look like you are anywhere near close to re- true traditional retirement age. So, you know, when people look at the pictures later on, they're going to go, those guys look like they're 20 or 30 years oh, old. Wow. Yeah, there we go. You know, got to throw my little, you know. Mm. It's okay. Yeah, there we, there we go. And we've heard Aaron now on the phone. <laughs> on the air too. Just got to compliment her age. So um, your past career had nothing to do with the wine industry. No, absolutely not. We were in uh, transportation logistics, uh, myself for 28 years uh, and Aaron for Gosh, uh, about eighteen, I guess, since she partook on the on the career and actually came to work at the office I was working at, and that's how we we originally met. But yeah, twenty eight years of eighty plus hour weeks for me, and that was uh, that was enough of that career. I can totally understand where the end of that would be lovely. So, Aaron, what do you think now? You're in the wine industry. You've now purchased a winery. You've come out of retirement, which sounds like such a lovely word. But honestly, I think I'll get bored if I like. <laughs> truly retire and do nothing. So I know, who knows, maybe I'll do something crazy too at some point that has nothing to do with insurance. So what do you think now? I mean, the wine career is a is not a typically a slough career unless you're just somebody that's kind of out of state, out of country, and you just have your name on the paper. No, it's been, it's been a lot. It's been a lot of learning, a lot of um, growth for sure. Like Drew and I already worked together, so we knew how to communicate with each other, but this is just a totally different level um just because we we've known wine we've enjoyed wine for so many years and um but this is just so much more um we're definitely hands-on we're there every day we live there so our free time is generally at the winery or in the vineyard and yeah absolutely it's it's been a just uh, certainly a whirlwind certainly a steep learning curve but it's been super fun uh, we just recently celebrated our first year and kind of looking back off at the experience. One, I will say it's been a calendar year, but I like to say it's taken about seven years off my life. It's a lot of work. It's <laughs> it's uh, it's it's not for the faint of heart. And that's not to say that, that we didn't enjoy fully that first year, but we are very hands-on. We are we are in every aspect of, of the business, uh, be it from the vine, uh, viticulture, enology, winemaking, sales we i think we've missed 3 days of 
tastings since ownership. So yeah, we're we're very hands on and very much wanting to be involved in every aspect of it. So it's been it's been terrific. You guys didn't just buy a label, so you have had to learn how to grow grapes, how to harvest, how to make wine. If I remember right, serving wine has been a little bit of a learning curve specifically, I think, for you, Drew, because I, you told me some stories that, you know, were a help SOS from a table when somebody's asked a question, I believe. So is there some aspect of this that you are loving and other ones that's maybe a little bit more of a challenge for you? I'm loving all of it. It's all a challenge. The tastings, to your point, especially early on, I had no idea what I was doing. People would ask questions that I just wasn't prepared to answer. And uh, so there was an often, often times of me calling to another member of our crew for some assistance, and which has been fantastic because we, we've got a fantastic crew that, that have been instrumental in helping us through this first year. Couldn't be more appreciative of their support. But so certainly tastings has been a, a learning curve, but it's actually now come to be the favorite part of the job for me. I love the connections that we make in that first year. And I had alluded to our first year having just come to pass and we had a celebratory dinner in which we invited people that were instrumental in, in our success that first year. And, you know, we're, while we were at that dinner, I took a moment just to stand back and, and reflect and, and kind of just look over that group, the group of people that has, had assembled to help us celebrate and was just kind of overfilled with emotion and gratitude at the, the group of people, uh, the community that we had built in that first year. And of there was 46 people that came to help us celebrate. And there were seven people that we knew prior to the purchase. So that tells me we really built a, this great community in a relatively short amount of time that we're all in to support this endeavor. And, and it, it, it really meant just a ton to us. I love that. That was uh, so eloquently put. <laughs> but I'm going to shift the question to Aaron before we take a break and start talking about wine, because we're going to bring the winemaker in and, and I think Tiket as well. But what has been the least favorite and your favorite part of the new adventure? Oh, my goodness. My least favorite was perhaps waking up so early for harvest. When you wake up at the crack of dawn, you really are waking up before dawn. And um, But that was really actually pretty fun to be able to be in the vineyard and see the sunrise happen and just be able to soak it all in. And it's, I don't know, I don't really know what my least, least favorite is. My favorite part really is just, just learning every single bit about it. And all the, like Drew has said, all the people that come up are just have so many different backgrounds and getting to hear their story and what interests them about wine and like everyone's just always that we've come across so hungry and eager to learn. And I don't know, it's just, it's just a lot of fun. We have a good time and I don't know, it's, a, it's fun going to work every day. I think that's really the beautiful thing with the wine industry, because whether you are the producer, the winemaker, the GM, the president, the drinker, um, whoever it is, everybody has a story. Everybody has a reason why they started drinking wine. Sometimes they tripped and stumbled into it. Sometimes it was given to them. And sometimes it just was this ultimate heart pulling passion that has drawn them into what is really an amazing industry. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I, I think Aaron and I's story was more of just kind of happened upon wine at a, uh, at a point in time that Aaron and I had just met and, and just 
we were working for a guy that was a garagiste and walking by his house. And it was our first taste of uh, Willamette Valley Pinot Noir. Mm. And I mean, I'll, I'll never forget. Yeah. I was like, oh, my gosh, uh, there's things beyond $7 Chianti. Yeah. yeah, that there are. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We were hooked. <laughs> yes, several things past the $7 Chianti. <laughs> so, well, I love having you guys here. Your spirit, your energy, and everything is just amazing. Let me say welcome to the wine industry in Oregon and the Pacific Northwest. And we're going to take a quick break here, and we're going to bring in the winemaker and some more wine, because we're all sitting empty, and uh, we'll go from there. Sounds fantastic. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, it looks like we pulled out the big boy with the wine that these guys brought because we just pulled out the Barrel Select Pinot. And from what I understand, this is the favorite in the room. So nice work, guys. <laughs> Thank you. <Thanks>. And nice, <laughs> nice choice and bringing, you know, bringing the the bad, yummy, delicious, you know, whatever. <laughs> this is really a great wine. So this is the Barrel Select. This is 2015. So um, we're not going to talk about that right off the bat because there's other wine to talk about. And well, and people, we've, we've done a, we've done a, personnel switch all of a sudden. So, and we have Tiket, who is the president of Adon with yes. us. And then we have Professor Dave, who is the winemaker. And Dave didn't remember, but we met several years ago when I actually taught one of his classes and did Insurance 101. I for remember. The, well, I had to remind him. I had to remind him. You did have to remind him. Were you wearing a mask? Yeah. yeah. No, I wasn't. Oh, no. I was breaking the rules. Oh, no. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I guess I should have went along with that. But anyway, it was several years ago. Yes, and and life is really. We'll edit that out in post. Yeah, yeah no, <laughs> nah, it's all good. It's all good. Keep on. Okay, so let's circle back, and yeah. we'll, you know, we'll actually talk. Let's talk business and wine. Um, Dave's been with Vidon since well for years. Yes, um, if I remember right. <laughs> that I'm is not correct. Even, no, I'm not going right. to age you. Yeah. I'm not going to try to even remember what you told me when you started. But you were here before the new owner um, switchover. Yes, so, I worked with Don of Vidon. Yeah. So how long have you actually been with Fidon? So off and on since 2013, actually. I worked in his in the tasting room with him in 13 for a bit. And then we both discovered that we were both scientists. And since 14, he asked me back to do the 14 vintage with him. And I made wine with him in 14. And then I went off to Aloro. And I was Tom Fitzpatrick's assistant at Aloro in 15 and 16. And then when Don turned 85, he got tired of digging out tanks by himself. So he brought me back uh, as the winemaker in 17. So that's the... We could do an entire show just on Don. <laughs> I mean, yeah. on, honestly, between his uh, riding bikes in... How old was he? 68 when he found... Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. he's digging tanks out at 85, which yeah. is not a yeah. old man yeah. person's job. <laughs> no. I, I don't even want to do it. Yeah. I'm not anywhere near that. So anyhow, kudos to him on so many levels. Yeah. Um, but anyhow, let's uh, let's talk about the wine then. I mean, just in general, because, you know, Vidon, you know, does make these beautiful wines. You have your own Thank estate you. vineyard. Yes, really. I mean, this No, I is, mean, I hope so. Thanks. Yes. Well, I usually wouldn't say so if I didn't think so. <laughs> So, yeah, so we're safe on that part. Um, 
Let's talk about the estate first yeah. and and what you actually have on the estate that you're growing yourselves. And then kind of, you know, the feel of the wine, kind of the technique, um, style, however you want to, you know, put it. And we'll let you guys kind of talk about who and what you are and um, what you do. You want to start with a question? <laughs> that was a question. It oh, was okay, just a really right. very yeah. long-winded yeah, question. Right. Let's start with the estate. Let's talk about what yeah. you're actually growing on property. Okay. So we got 12 and a half acres under cultivation. And um, originally, of course, it started out the the kind of legacy block that we're drinking right now um, is Pinot. Um, and then throughout the years, we kind of worked our way counterclockwise around the, the vineyard and put in Chardonnay and then Syrah and Viognier and Tempranillo. And then this year, we also planted a small amount of Gamay. So those are all the, the varietals that we have in the ground right now. And are you just using estate grapes for winemaking then? We are estate only. Which is so unique and yeah. it's so nice because then you know exactly what's going into the grapes exactly. and what's going into the bottle. And yeah. it's just such a cool process. Well, and we have a wine called the Three Clones that basically now is kind of a 20-year vintage variation experiment because every year it's the same grapes and it's the same dirt and it's the same winemaking techniques because I've kind of followed on from what Don did. And so each year, the only difference between that wine is just sunlight and rain, right? And so if you taste them in a vertical, they're all very different from each other just because of the weather that year because everything else is all the same. And it's a fascinating kind of experiment well, to do. Well, and we talk about terroir, and terroir is pretty much, you know, mother nature, weather, dirt, dirt yeah. whatever. <laughs> and the fact that you have two scientists er more or less originally that we're kind of doing this together as experiments, which you don't hear that word very often <laughs> <laughs> utilized in public when you're talking about wine. But when you're talking about true scientists, I can see where this is is really a experiment in chemistry and biology and yes. so many other different things. Yeah. Yeah. So how's the experiment gone? Oh, I think it's, <laughs> it was, continues on. It's fascinating, right? Um uh, it's neat that we are able to have control some of these variables, which is what science is all about. It's you know, doing an experiment where you only change one thing. So, Which is? Well, in that case, it's the weather. But we also do another experiment that we've been doing for 20 years, which is we make single clone wines, which is, you know, each clone is harvested, fermented, and barreled on its own. And so the three clones is mixed together at the end, and that's kind of the vintage variation experiment. But we also bottle the single clones by themselves. And so that's a horizontal experiment each year. So there they get the same sunlight and rain. And the only difference between those wines is the clone. Good Lord, we just added geometry. <laughs> right, the exactly. exactly. God, I think you've almost lost me on this. <laughs> so let's uh, let's talk about everything that you have in the bottle, yeah. um, just in general. And, you know, if you want to start to cut with just I mean, honestly, we need to kind of introduce you to an extent as well, because, you know, you've been leveling. You have this great radio voice and this giggle in the background of everything we've been talking about. Like, that's but what I'm good for. Back yeah, there. no, yeah. but you have a little bit larger of a title than just um, background giggler. So, so let's uh, let's introduce you and then let's talk about really everything that you are offering at the um, at the tasting room as far as wine. Yeah. Um, so I am the president at the winery. Um, I've been there for... God, I think it's eight months now. It's been forever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but no, so in the tasting room, we have 
it's been a lot of fun because we've been able to really experiment and, you know, that's our favorite word to use, um, and play around with the flight and see what people are gravitating towards. And that's been a fun part for us of getting to play around and changing it from truly day to day. So um, we always greet people with Chardonnay in the parking lot. We always feel like it's really important to welcome people with the wine. Um, And not only just to open up that palate, but also it's just kind of like breaking bread and getting people to relax a little bit and just welcoming them home, right? Letting them know that this is their place to escape and just kind of let their guard down a little bit. And from there, they'll try our melange and our three clones side by side. So they give a ch- have a chance to try the younger rootstock versus that older rootstock. And that's always a really fun comparison for them. Then from there, they'll go into our single clone pinots. And that's when we introduce them to the big reds. So that's when we'll go into the Tempranillo or into our Syrah. And that's always a fun one for people, especially in the Willamette Valley, because we're so used to trying a lot of Pinot Noirs. If people want to try something different or if they're experiencing a little bit of palate fatigue from Pinot, they get to try something a little different. Or if they're just not interested in Pinot, we have something for them that can be a little different. And coming from the Willamette Valley, we've got something fun for them to try. It's always fun when you add Syrah or Tempranillo or something that's uniquely not typically associated with the Willamette Valley. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Into a flight. Exactly. And and call it your own, whether you've grown it right. yourselves, right. which is the case. Right. Or you've even if you've gotten it from Southern Oregon or, you know, Eastern Washington or whatever. Right. When it's yours and you've made it, bottled it, loved it, whatever, and thrown it on a flight, for me, it's always like it's like an ooh, it's always right. an extra perk. <laughs> right. You know, I mean Pinot is amazing, but you do get a little bit of Pinot fatigue yeah. because there's so much of it. And, and nothing bad about that by any Ex- means, because exactly. Pinot has made Oregon famous 100%. around the world. A hundred percent. But it is nice to have a little bit of a mix up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Pinot's the reason I moved up here, you know, so it's like that's it was a big appeal for me. But my whole intrigue of even coming to Vidon for myself in the first place was the fact that there was Tempranillo grown on the estate. So I had to go myself to learn what that was all about. And then the fact that there was Syrah as well grown right next door, I was like, what is happening up here? What did Don do? This is amazing. How do more people not know about this? So it's just, it's a beautiful thing to be able to showcase and give people such a sense of pride in the Willamette Valley and a great sense of place. So they have that great escape to come back to and say, I'm taking this bottle from Oregon, you know, back to their homes. And they say, yeah, I got this in Oregon. You know, I got this Tempranillo or this Syrah from Oregon. So... So would you consider the Tempranillo and Syrah more of a cool weather Syrah and Tempranillo from your site? Yeah, 100%. And we've talked about it a little bit in the past, but I want to touch on it again because, you know, not everybody listens to every episode and (laughs) shame on you, by the way. Um, (laughs) How dare you? But there is a difference in the flavor profiles and just the overall experience with a cool weather Syrah and Tempranillo versus something that's come maybe from a hotter climate. Yes, yes, I agree. Yes, yes, I guess maybe I should have ended that <laughs> yeah, with, no, with a question yeah, mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so can you kind of put into words what that what that is, what that does, what people should expect? Because I think people do go tasting and they expect a big, chewy, bold red that came from Southern Oregon or a hotter, you know, hotter climate. And they get 
something that's different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess with the the Tempranillo, um, in the first couple of years that we've made it, it tends to be kind of darker fruited. You get, I mean, Tempranillo, you tend to get those kind of plum flavors anyways, but it's kind of plum and cherry, but kind of on the darker end of the spectrum. And then also quite soft, I think. I mean, we had a recent Tempranillo tasting um, where we got to taste a dozen Tempranillos from around Oregon in yes. one day, and they're all quite different from each other. But, you know, you do notice that in the warmer sites, they can be much more grippy. And ours in the first couple of years have been much kind of softer. Um, <laughs> <me> emotional. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you, need, if you need Kleenex, let me know because somebody okay. has stolen my Kleenex box and oh. I'm sure she can go find it. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I guess for the Tempranillo, <laughs> for the Tempranillo, it um, it tends to be on the kind of darker end of the spectrum for fruit. It's kind of plummy and cherry, these kind of dark fruits. And the first couple of years that we've, so 2015 was the first harvest for that. So the one we're pouring is only the second harvest for our Tempranillo. And the first couple that we've made, they tend to be very kind of nice and soft in contrast to some of the Tempranillos that you find in hotter places where they tend to be very grippy and lots of tan and ours is is kind of much softer and kind of more accessible earlier on, I think. And then the, the Syrah, as it turns out, we make a Syrah because we have Viognier on the property. We make a co-ferment, which is the way they do it in Cote Roti in France, which Interesting. is... Interesting. Yes. Yeah, so, so we take a few percent of the white grapes and we put them in with the red Syrah during the ferment, and that adds some some kind of floral notes, some kind of high notes in the in the aromas, and it it can shift the pH down a little bit and, and give you kind of a darker, a deeper red. Shift it down a little bit from the purple. I mean, that's one thing that the acidity of the white grape can do, and it kind of stabilizes the color. But it's this classic way of making Syrah that they do in the northern um, Rhone Valley, and as it turns out. The main city where Coroti sits, which is Ampui, has exactly the same latitude as Newburgh. Right. So it's not unexpected that you could make really good Syrah in, you know, in this area because it's already growing halfway around the world in exactly the same place. They get the same number of kind of ripening hours that that we get. And much of the same weather. So we have that kind of cooler climate, darker Syrah. We can get very darkly colored Syrahs, but it tends to have that, um, we get a lot of those kind of black pepper notes that you get in the Northern Rhone. We don't get the black olive that they get. Right. But, right. so it's not, you know, a classic Rhone. It's a Willamette, it's an it Oregon It is a Willamette Syrah, wine, yeah, yeah. But it is much cooler climate than those kind of black pepper and a little bit of cherry and some, sometimes some, a little bit of licorice. Yeah. To, yeah. The mouthfeel on it is beautiful because it's so velvety and smooth. So it's like that the texture and the structure behind it is just, it's beautiful. And another one that's just, it's surprising. And it wasn't something that, for myself anyways, that I assumed what it would taste like coming from the Willamette Valley because of just where it grows. I was like, is it going to mature enough? We don't know. So you know, it's like, I have to come and try it for myself. So it was just the body behind it and the depth behind it is what surprised me. And just, I love the fact that we can say it comes right here from home, you know? Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. And and okay, I got to back up about 
seven sentences <laughs> is <laughs> is black olive flavor in a wine really a thing? I've never heard anybody ever say that. And I'm trying to kind of imagine the flavor because I love olives, <laughs> but that in a red wine. So you can you can taste it because you know like when like when you when you say it, you can taste it in your mouth, right? It's like you all of a sudden you're like, oh, you get that saltiness, that slickness of the black olive. So you can pull that out from that style, which is a lot of fun because in a blind tasting, all of a sudden you're like, there it is. I think I know what this wine is. And that's when you get really excited because you're like all of a sudden saying, I think. I think I know something, y'all. Like, hold on a second. Like, like, I think I'm zeroing in on this. It is on one this. of the classic descriptors it for, is, uh, it for is. a Northern Round. Yeah. So yeah. crazy. Yeah. 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 Th- this is why you should never invite me to do any sort of tasting <laughs> notes of any sort. Because <laughs> that would not have been on my list of even anything to even pick from. <laughs> so... But that's always the fun part. Yeah. I mean, like when I was taking my SOM classes, my teacher would always tell me to just like turn your brain off and just be open to what you are tasting and what you're smelling. So there would be times where I was tasting something and it would be that style of Syrah. And I would say like, I know that this is going to sound weird, but you know when you have those pizzas that have like a little bit of everything on it and it's the cheese and the olives and the onions. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, yeah, I'm getting a lot of that olive on there. And he was like, mm-hmm. you should. Like, and he was like, that's correct. He's so like, and a little crazy. bit of that fattiness. Yeah. So interesting to yeah. me. Okay. I'm going to put a halt right there because we could talk about this <laughs> yeah. so long. Yeah. And I wanted, um, well, now that we've talked about the Syrah, I want some. <laughs> so we're going to, I'm going to polish down this Pinot and we're going to put some Syrah in the glass. And then I want to finish up with talking about kind of what to experience when you're at Vidon yeah. and uh, where to find you guys. So yeah. um, Dave, time to open the wine. <laughs> Can I just say, oh my God, this is so (laughs) delicious. I will say just really quickly that everybody has like their wine aha moment where they're like, oh my God, this stuff is amazing. Mine is a Willamette Valley Syrah from a few years ago and I've never forgotten it. It's, you know, I hate to say it's my absolute favorite because there's so much great wine and I'd get in trouble for so many people. (laughs) But it was that aha moment when I tried it and I'm like, holy hell, what is this? This is amazing. Okay, I'm sold. Yeah, And this is very much in that same ballpark. It's that cool weather Syrah grown in the Willamette Valley. It's uh, not jammy. Yeah. yeah. Kudos yeah. <laughs> to you all for bringing a lovely wine with you. So just so you know, if there's extras of this, I've already taken dibs on it. I'm taking it home. So um, there's Sorry, that. <laughs> I want people to be able to find you, see you you know, social media, websites, um, because we've talked long and we, yeah. I've been, we need to just kind of finish it up. So, but we, I want to find you guys. So where are you? How do we find you? Um, do you have anything great and cool coming up that we should know about this spring? Yeah. So we are in Newburgh. We are up off a of hillside drive. It is a beautiful spot. We overlook the valley. It is like no other. We've got incredible, incredible seating on our vineyard overlook. You can find us at Vidon Wine on Instagram, Vidon Vineyard, and Vidon Wine on Facebook. We are very responsive. You can make reservations online on via Instagram and all of our social media platforms. 
You can find us anywhere. We have a really good time up there. We're really family-oriented. We love our community. So come up and see us. I'm trying to think for the spring, we've got some really fun stuff cooking in the kitchen. Um, We're going to have some fun stuff coming down the pipe. I think everybody's going to be really pleased to see what's going to be coming out. No spoilers. Uh, But yeah, I think uh, we've got some special stuff coming out. Just so you know, that's unfair. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to say two things before I tell you thank you and we move on to Andrew. Is uh, One, I love how you approach the people coming in and the tastings and bringing that, that really down to a very comfortable level because that is something that I know I have always struggled with and still do. Yeah. Um, even though I, you know, am around wineries and wine a lot, having that welcome and that down-to-earth presence is just it's amazing and is a great way to start a great tasting. And I think you really need something on the wall that said, what did Dawn do? And have it as a piece of art because I've heard that now a couple times. And, you know, and Dawn is, you know, he's a legend. He's so That he is. Yes. yes. So anyhow, that's my two thoughts. Other than, again, thank you for the wine. Thank you for coming. Thanks thank for you for all your wonderful presence for with all of you. And uh, I'm going to bring my whole crew up to see you guys. Soon. Yes, right. please. So, thank you. So, yeah, we pleasure. can't wait. So hold tight. Grab your phone because that's probably how you're listening to us right now. Head to the kitchen, refill your glass, and we'll be right back with Andrew Beckham. It is now time to introduce Andrew Beckham with Beckham Estates. I have been chasing you for years, I feel like, to get you on the show because I love so much what you do with the Amphoras. Actually, I'm not going to even, I've already spilled the secret, but that's okay. So anyhow, welcome, Andrew, to the show. I am so glad. I've kind of double dipped you here in the last month. I pulled you into an event and now I pulled you into the studio. So now you're off the hook for while until I come up with something new. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we could make the timing work. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, You have been a very, very busy man for years because you've had a day job that you have since retired from. And uh, now you're doing the wine thing truly full time. So I always like to start with a story and kind of where your passion for wine started and where your story into the the wine industry started. And so I'm going to turn it over to you because we talked about it, but it's been a while (laughs) since we've talked about it. And so I do want to talk about, you know, not only, you know, your history with teaching and ceramics, but, you know, your passion for wine. Sure. Okay. I can do that. I know you can. So, yeah, uh, it is true. I've just completed 20 years as a public school teacher teaching ceramics at Beaverton High. And really, the the ceramics piece of things is the reason that we we got into making wine and started planting a vineyard in the first place. So in the early 2000s, I was showing my artwork regionally. And Andrea and I, my wife, Andrea, lived in southwest Portland and needed more space. And we're hoping to find a piece of property in the country on which we could create a pottery studio. So we found a piece on Parrot Mountain that was at that point eight and a half acres, and it was all in timber. And we thought, great, this is going to work perfect to build a pottery. And it was just a couple months after moving there, we got to know our neighbors who were across the street from us quite well, um, Fred and Jill Newton, who have since moved on. And they had uh, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir growing. And Fred sold his Pinot Noir out of the garage on Saturdays for $10 a bottle. 
Wow, so, <laughs> that's a heck of a bargain. <laughs> right? Yeah. So we spent a lot of time with with Fred and his wife, Jill, and he was a former educator before he retired. And we had a lot to talk about, a lot in common. I helped him prune his vineyard the first winter we were out there and came back with a truckload of cuttings and said to Andrea, what do you think about planting a few rows of wine grapes? And she humored me and said, yes, that sounds kind of exciting. But it was just a month or two later, we clear cut the timber and started preparing the land to plant um, our first four acres of vines. So we hired a, a timber company to cut the trees and I ran the 90,000 pound track hoe and high track cat, pulled about a thousand stumps out of the ground. And before we had children, Andrea and I sat on our living room couch, propagating Pinot Noir, turning our shag carpet into Berber in quick order. Much to my parents' dismay, my mother is a real estate agent and actually showed us the property to begin with. She thought that we were destroying the look and the beauty and aesthetics of where we were living. And I told her to be patient. It was just a transformation that was going to take time. I don't know if I've heard the Berber carpet story and the fact that that's really how you guys started the vineyard. So that's amazing. And I can totally picture it. It's very, I don't know, it's like a made-for-TV movie kind of there with, you know, how to go from teacher to vineyard owner slash winemaker, you know, in short order. Yeah, we thought initially we would just sell the fruit. And so I did all of the farming uh, through year five and delivered the fruit in 2007 and in eight at a loss. And it was sort of heartbreaking for me to come to the realization that that we weren't going to make money as farmers. So I had this great grand idea that we would increase the value of our crop by take, making it into wine. And again, we were incredibly naive with that prospect. So I apprenticed with a couple different winemakers in 2007, eight, and made our first vintage in 2009. We made 250 cases with no home, no tasting room, no no venue to sell it. So we made our first vintage in 2009. I built a tasting room and we opened the tasting room in 2011 on Labor Day weekend. And we had one wine to sell. We had a Tyvek wrapped building with no windows and a gravel floor and a light bulb hanging from the ceiling. And people came and we poured them the same wine four times. And they bought the wine. <laughs> Did they think it was a different wine in each uh, glass? Well, we were, we had to be honest that, you know, of course <laughs> it was actually the same wine over and over again. Uh, but it was really gratifying to share it with people. You know, at that point we had a lot of time and energy invested into the project and people liked it. <laughs> so, what, what a concept, right? What a concept. I would say that when we started, I was making wine based on imitating and copying those that I'd learned from. So I learned from two technical winemakers uh, who were really about data collection, manipulation to some degree, formula. So it was it was uh, at that point, the wines we were producing were, were made in that vein, high alcohol, lots of different stuff added to, to adjust chemistry, filtered, and things changed over time as we understood ourselves as grape growers and winemakers. Where did the amphoras come in? Because we've talked about a little bit of your pottery background, but what you're really known for and what I have really been magnetically attracted to what you're doing is because you're actually making the vessels that you're aging most of your wine in. Sure. And it's very unique is one word, but it's very history driven because this is, you just got back from Portugal, which we kind of briefly touched on that, but they've been doing this for hundreds, 
of years, thousands of years into these, I'm going to let you start talking because I'm going to butcher something and not give it the <laughs> credit it really deserves. Okay, sure. So I'd been a potter since I was 15 and always had been focused on building larger scale vessels each year. I always wanted to push the envelope and see if we could increase the scale of things, but there was never a purpose behind those pots. They were just purely aesthetic. And in 2012, my wife showed me an article on Elisabetta Foradori and her use of amphora in the Dolomites in Trentino. She has amphora made by a Spanish producer and makes these really marvelous wines. Teraldigo is the red that she produces there. She does Pinot Gris on the skins. And I looked at the photos and I said to Andrea, oh, I can make those. So I went to the clay shop the next week and bought some terracotta and made our first set of amphora for vintage 2013. And we made wine in them, and the wine was was really quite compelling and quite differentiated from the wines we were making in traditional containers um, and aging in, in French oak. And just to clarify, because not everybody knows what an amphora is. I, I mean, I assume that everybody knows what it is, but I know for a fact that they don't, because had I not met you, I would have gone, huh? I have no idea what that is. Sure, yeah, okay. So uh, an amphora would be a descriptor for a large terracotta vessel used to ferment and age wine. But really, the nomenclature is a bit problematic. There are different terms from different regions of the world that people use to describe terracotta containers. Uh, in Portugal, where I was just visiting in Spain, they're called Talia or Tinaja. From the Black Sea region, the Caucasus, Azerbaijan, Turkey, Armenia, the Republic of Georgia, they're called Quevri. Uh, and they have a different shape. They're very round and bulbous and typically subterranean. They're buried and often lined in beeswax. The vessels from Portugal and Spain are above ground. They have a, a narrower opening at the top and a quite specific shape. Then there are Etruscan or Roman forms called dolium. And so this is a tradition that, that goes back at least 8,000 years. In the uh, Black Sea region, they have found wine tartrates in terracotta vessels that are 8,500 years old. Wow. So the history of mine, wine and terracotta and man and, and terracotta vessels goes back to the beginning of recorded and spoken history. And there are some really interesting things about the material. The, the material, the terracotta, has been the common component in these vessels, regardless of shape or what part of the world they're from. You had explained that to me, and I know you said that you had done several different styles, shapes, types, whatever, trying to find the perfect one for what you were doing. How long did that take? How many <laughs> trial and errors were there? And are you happy with where you're at now with it, what you've created? Ah, yeah. Okay. Those are great questions. So I spoke of learning to make wine through imitation, which is a way that I've always taught my students um, to, to learn new material, to copy a master, and then eventually the material becomes their own and, and the ownership transfers. So when I began the process, I imitated these different shapes that I've just been speaking of and tried to replicate them in Oregon with New World clay um, in North America. And I made wine in these different containers and really tried to dig into why the shapes were different based on geographical region, what the intention and outcome was with the different vessels, and then ultimately um, wanted to create my own form as a, a potter in Oregon making these containers with, with clay from the new world, I didn't want to claim to be making something that I'm not. So we branded our project Novum, meaning a new beginning in Latin, 
And I designed the vessel using some of the characteristics that I had observed and studied while imitating other containers, but focused more on proportion. So we, we developed the vessel using the golden ratio and really wanted to try to capture thermal stratification as it manifests as kinetic energy in the containers where we can actually see movement of the wine, movement of the juice if we're fermenting juice, and uh, an upwelling and, and compressing of the cap if we're fermenting with skins. This really incredible thermal dynamics that are happening inside the containers we wanted to uh, exemplify. Yeah, so I, I think one thing that's really interesting about the project is that the winemaker and the potter are the same person. So I am never going to just be stagnant with the development of what we're doing. I can experience things in the cellar and reflect and then go to the studio, which is 100 yards away, and change practice with the way we're forming the vessels, with the, the chemistry perhaps, with the firing protocol, trial it and then see what happens in the cellar the next year. So we're constantly in exploration mode. We're always integrating and improving method, technique, process, and then really looking at outcome and and how the wines are showing and how the wines are tasting, as that is really the most important piece to the whole puzzle. I want to, you know, I guess comment on the fact that wine and the wine industry is so creative, so unique. Everybody has a different voice. Everybody has a different vision. This is 100% to me just so, I hate to use the word unique because I've said it several times, but it's so you and it's so yours. And they're just, it's really become kind of your DNA to what the wine industry is and, and what your stamp of it is on it. There's so much more about the wine I want to talk about, but the glasses are getting empty, which is always a problem around here. And um, I want to come back in just a second and really talk about the difference between um, not only what you're doing with the wine and the different varietals that you're using, but the differences between aging something in one of the amphoras and aging something in one of the barrels and kind of the differentiations and how it it um, reacts differently, it ages differently, it breathes differently. I just, it, it's so intriguing to me and I've heard it three or four times from you, but I want to hear it again okay? because I just find it so interesting. (laughs) So everybody grab a glass. I'm sure yours is empty as well. And we'll be right back. It's time to start kind of talking about wine. With you being in a state winery, though, you know, and vineyard, there's a huge differentiation in a lot of minds as far as especially when you're tending the grapes and what goes into your glass. And so great wine starts in the vineyard, right? I think that's absolutely the truth, especially when you're making wine in our vein where we're not manipulating the chemistry at all. It really is all about the farming and farming for style. And you have so much going on up there because not only do you have kind of your, you know, pinots and the kind of the traditional ones, but you've planted a whole plethora of things that I hadn't heard about that <laughs> I don't think are probably ready for bottle yet, but they're up and coming if I if I understood my timeline correct. Right, right. Yeah, so in total, we've added acreage over the years. We have 36 acres of land. We have uh, about 20 acres under vine now, and we are growing 35 different varietals there. That's so crazy to me. Yeah. It's like 35 children that you're trying to keep track of all at the same time. <laughs> right? Well... Part of this is us wanting to to differentiate ourselves from the valley and to some degree, 
Part of it also is looking for varietals that are going to work in a warming climate with temperatures rising every year. We're finding it to be increasingly difficult to make Pinot Noir in our house style as we're not acidulating the fruit. So we're farming for acid and, and harvesting early and not tilling the soil and hedging high and not pulling leaves and using farm animals to mow and, and fertilize and punch in organics. But ultimately, I, I think that we may need to move our Pinot Noir from the west-facing slopes around to the north. Wow. Um, and, and also experiment with some varietals that are harder to ripen here. So we've got, we have Pinot Noir. We have seven acres of Pinot Noir. We have Riesling. We have a five-acre Trousseau Noir planting, including four different Trousseau clones. Our favorite being Bastardo, a selection Mastal, Mastal of the Bastardo clone. We've got Sauvignon Blanc, which we've vinified now for three vintages. The Trousseau, this is the third vintage we've made it. Uh, we have Alagote which we've made on its own for the first time this year. We have 11 different Alsatian whites that are co-planted for Edel's liquor-style white wine, and they include Oxerwash, Schwebe, Ehrenfelser, Rulander, Pinot Gris, Pinot Blanc, Gewürztraminer, and I'm leaving two out, unfortunately. I was going to ask you if you could name all 35, and you're doing a really good job so far, <laughs> other than you just stumped up. So. I, yeah, I, I messed that one up. We have some high Alpine Italian varietals, one of which shows great promise, Albana. It's got really interesting phenolics and is a very loose cluster. I think we'll do well in Oregon wet fall weather if we ever get back to wet falls. We have Nebbiolo and Schiapertino, Montuni. We have some less common white material. We have Simeon, Sauvignon Rose, Flora, Muir Turgau, Malone de Bregon, and some others. So. That's impressive, but nice, nice work, by the way. I don't know what number that was. We should have been counting, but as a, you got a good, good chunk of them out of the way. Yeah. You know, let's shift a little bit back towards the actual winemaking itself, because there is a difference with how things age between the amphora with the clay and then the French oak. But you're also doing different things, like even just this Pinot Gris that we're drinking, it's pink. Which is not, and you didn't, I don't think technically mean to make it a rosé, but when I poured it out of the bottle, I was expecting a white, like a clear white, goldeny, and it's very lovely. Yeah. So I would actually consider this Pinot Gris to be red wine. Um, it's a year-long skin maceration, and that's very atypical for, for really any wine to be macerated for an entire vintage. So I think some people might not realize that Pinot Gris is actually purple. It's just a slightly lighter hue of purple than Pinot Noir. And most winemakers don't want the color in the wine, so they press it straight away. And if they have color that shows up in the juice, maybe they'll they'll try to do something to remove the color and they make a, a white wine with it. This is really a, a totally different outcome when we're on the skins and seeds for a year. The more simple citrus notes are quite transformed with this wine to notes of exotic tropical fruits, pomegranate, guava, strawberry, rhubarb. For me, this wine smells and tastes of fall. It's a, a harvest wine. It smells like the beginning of fermentation in our cellar. I think sometimes for me, the nose has got the essence of wet leaves, wet apple skins, a slight citrus rind aroma, and then it's got this really interesting fruit profile backed up with tannin and color. So if you close your eyes and, and think about this wine, 
Uh, I think it's more in the realm of red wine than white. We also make white wine from red grapes. So we we like to push the norms to whatever degree we can. You're screwing with everybody. Pretty <laughs> much is what you're doing. <laughs> you take anything that's technically like quote unquote traditional and basically mixing it up and doing something different, which is what makes wine great and wine cool and really makes you stand out among really a large crowd. Yeah. Good. Well, that's that's the end game. The the goal is to try to make sure we're unique and different, but well-crafted at the same time. And I would say, I mean, I've said it many times, I don't have a great palate, but I would you know, also agree that this is more like a red wine. It has that tannin and that, that kind of complexity base to it, to what most people think with a Pinot Gris is just kind of a, you know, a, I don't want to say like a light white wine, but just something that, you know, people just don't take very seriously mm-hmm. a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are ripping out of the ground anymore um, because there's bigger, better things in, you know, whoever's mind. So this is really a great representation of what this can be. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. And I, I would suggest that a, a big portion, a big reason this wine reads the way that it does as a finished product is because of the amphora, uh, the shape of the vessel is such that with time, the seeds, the pips, as the skins become more degraded, drop to the bottom of the container, and then the skins fall on top, forming a protective blanket. And for this reason, we're not extracting astringent seed tannin that we would if we were in a broad-bottom tank, but instead everything's encapsulated in the cone in the bottom of the vessel. So really, I think that has a, a big bearing on, on outcome. One of the big things that really struck me when I was up there tasting with you, and I believe it was your assistant winemaker that was up there, um, because I know Andrea ducked out of that too. She had things to do, I think, with the kids. Kids were busy, so which totally was, I totally identify, was really, I don't know if you'd consider it a vertical tasting or horizontal tasting or whatever it was, but it was the same wine, I think identically, other than one was done in an amphora and one was done in a barrel. And it was drastically different. I mean, as far as texture, taste, smell, aromas, everything was so different. Yeah, thanks for bringing me back to your question that I kind of circumnavigated. I didn't mean to do that. Sometimes so, but... <laughs> we go sideways here and it's okay. Sometimes I can bring it back around and I, sometimes I forget. So yes, we do make um, some of our wines as sisters, which I think is is really interesting to be able to taste side by side as one can really start to get a feel for what's happening in wood and maybe not happening in amphora is is how I would put it. So uh, one wine in particular we can speak of that I have here on the table tonight is the Pinot Noir Creta, which we make in amphora. It's Pinot Noir made with our four different clones on our site. We also make this wine in wood, which I don't have here, but I can explain. Shameful. Um, <laughs> Always how shameful. They, how things shake out and how they're different. So. The creta, um, the fermentation happens in an amphora, and it's very long and slow and cool. So typically with our uninoculated fruit, we see ferments that are around 45 to 50 days in clay. And the same lot of fruit picked with the same set of clones, the same harvest parameters fermented in a two-ton vessel typically takes 10 to 11 days to go through, and we'll see temperatures at 30 degrees Celsius. So much hotter, much more intense extraction in the larger vessels, very slow and cool and long in the terracotta. So after primary fermentation, the wines are quite remarkably different just based on their condition during ferment. The creta typically has more tension and energy. It's brighter. 
I think as it hasn't gotten as hot in the ferment. Then when we press and return, the crata goes back to clay and our estate Pinot Noir gets squeezed and then put into neutral French oak. And we're using large format neutral barrels, punch in and even up to thousand liter food. So during the elevage is when we really start to see a big difference in uh, the outcome of the wine. The wines made in the amphora and in the oak barrels from our site tend to have a lot of red fruit character, lots of red raspberry, red strawberry, red cherry. Perhaps in the in the terracotta, we see a slightly more dried fruit character. So rather than fresh cherries, like a, a, a dried cherry, rather than fresh strawberry, hood strawberry, a dried berry. Most interesting to me, though, is the lack of sweetness that we always get on the palate from neutral oak. And then, of course, levels of char and toast are going to correlate with the, the oak influence as well. So the wines that we're making in the terracotta, the creta in this case, tends to have this remarkable purity. It, it doesn't have any influence from the wood, no external input happening as a result of contact with oak, but it has a really interesting and quite unique texture or mouthfeel that I would liken to putting your tongue on a wet rock, piece of slate, a brick, a, a stone. There's an undeniable minerality. And then, of course, this texture that's sort of dusty and chalky. We also see the wines coming from Amphora have a great deal of clarity. And this is due partly to the, the condition of the clay itself. The clay has a negative ionic polarity and acts as a fining catalyst or chamber. So it eliminates the use of bentonite that's used commonly to fine or clarify wine. We're actually getting that condition as a result of the wine being stored in the vessels. Uh, they breathe slightly more than wood. So we also find that our wines aged in, in terracotta tend to evolve at a slightly faster rate, not in a negative way. They are just cohesive earlier on in their evolution. And these wines made in clay are incredibly sound once they've gone to bottle. As they've gotten their micro-oxygenation in the front portion of their life, they're very long-lived in bottle. So these are some of the observations, I think, that, that speak most to the difference between the vessels. And what I always come back to is purity. That's what resonates the most with me. It's not a synthesized material. It's not concrete. It's fired earth. You don't have any input coming externally, but rather the vessels, in my opinion, really showcase the farming the place and the varietal. I just think we need to stop right there. So just because that was amazing. <laughs> I just, I mean, that was so incredibly poetic in the way you described all of that. I mean, it just, and again, I I agree. I just took one sip out of the red wine of the creature that we just took. And you do kind of get almost like a, a little bit of a electronic charge out of it. Like, I don't know, that mm. sounds really weird, but just kind of a I don't know. It just maybe is that tongue on the rock kind of thing to where, I don't know, brings back childhood memories for some reason. And it's it's really lovely. Yeah, so, thank you. Yes. I, one, one other thing of note that I didn't mention, you can plug this in or not. I talked about our farming where we've been dry farmed from the beginning, organic since 2012. We use biodynamic principles in our farming as well. And for us, it really comes down to sustainability and stewardship. And these vessels are quite unique for this reason. They're kind of the opposite of French oak in terms of their trajectory of life. An oak tree would take generations to grow, and then it's harvested and turned into barrel that's used for three to five years, maybe 10 years, and then ultimately disposed of. Where the terracotta amphora, the vessels, the novum, 
get better with every use, like seasoning a cast iron pan. So they have the opposite trajectory where they can be in use for generations. We thousands of years. Thousands of years. We mentioned Portugal at the beginning of the episode. And I saw just two weeks ago vessels dating as far back as 1647 that were full of 2021 vintage wine, wow. still in use. So they're they're quite remarkable in that regard. It's so crazy to bring history to the forefront. I mean, you can take something that's 800 years old and still use it today, and it's current history, but it's also past history Yeah, on the same thing. So I don't want to go any deeper because I want to save some surprises for people that are going to come find you now. And because you are this beautiful little hidden gem, and we were just talking about it during break, you don't have blue signs all over the place, and it's you're just this wonderful stumble across, I hate to say, if that brings any sort of negativity, but you are this wonderful stop in the road that people maybe aren't expecting to find, and I want them to come find you. So you need to tell them where to find you, (laughs) both on social media and online and also physically, to come drink. Sure. Yeah. So let's see. Instagram is at Beckham Estate. It's also at Novum Ceramics, at Novum Ceramics, where I've got some fun short videos of fermentation and amphora and some other stuff that's kind of interesting, kilns and the like. We are located on Parrot Mountain. We're about 10 minutes from Newburgh, 10 minutes from Sherwood, and 10 minutes from Wilsonville. Our tasting room is open by appointment only, but we're open seven days a week. We offer a a different tasting experience, I think, than some. The Amphora project particularly takes some explanation and So we really try to go through an educational process when people are tasting with us so they really understand the premise of using these containers and what's special and unique about them. So someone could make an appointment with my wife, Andrea. Her email is andrea at beckhamestatevineyard.com. Phone number 971-645-3466. She's going to kill you, by the way. (laughs) And her name is not spelled like the traditional spelling of Andrea because it kills me every time I try to find her. And I've I've now learned how to spell her name. Yes. It's not it's not normal. So yes. Yes. And uh, you know, the other the other piece to tasting there that's interesting, of course, we are growing the vines there and we have invite people to visit the cellar and see the vessels in position but also the studio where I make the pots is accessible. And and is amazing. Yes, his studio is amazing. If you've ever wanted to see how a large pot is created, it it's just, it's really pretty mind-blowing, Andrew. So um, thousand pounds yes. on the big ones, yeah. Yeah, they're huge. They do not move around like a wine bottle. So it is is quite the process to get all of it built, made, dried, everything. So we could have literally spent easily an hour talking about everything today, but um, I'm going to leave some surprises for when people come up and visit you. So, Super. Yes. Thank you again so much for coming and joining us. Thank you, Andrea, too, for wielding my phone calls and text messages and everything else and getting him here. So uh, greatly appreciated. Super. Thanks for the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. 